Thank you. All right, so a review. Um, we have, we need to remember that the, the book of Romans begins in the first 15 verses. It talks about the doctrine of authority. It talks about how Paul is an apostle. He's delivering the word of God. It's authoritative. The word of God is the highest authority. Then we are told about the mission of the Great Commission, the doxological focus, filling the earth with the glory of God, with the knowledge of God. There's a thesis there right afterwards, and this thesis is what gets unpacked for the rest of the book. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And so we look at the ways in which it is revealed, and it's revealed from faith to faith. It's revealed from the objective delivery of the word of God to the subjective individual believer. So we have the faith delivered to your faith. The content is poured in. So that's what that revelation is. So he's telling us what that revelation is. And he summarizes for us the gospel. He gives to us the diamond that is the centerpiece of the gospel. The gospel is a broader thing that includes all of the counsel of God. When we talk about the gospel in a narrow sense, we're talking about the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone. And so that is given to us in this gem of a sentence. The just shall live by faith. And so we have justice before Almighty God through the instrument of faith. And that faith is life. And that faith causes us to be seen as the living, as the righteous in the sight of God. So then, the righteousness of God is broken out into its parts. We have chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. The righteousness of God is discussed in terms of God is righteous in Himself. He's a righteous judge. Righteousness is one of His attributes. He is the just one. Now, in addition to that, we have the law of God so that the righteousness of God is revealed in the law. Both by showing His righteous judgment for the angels that are righteous, His righteous judgment that Christ is a keeper of the law, his righteous judgment that we and the fallen angels are sinners. There is a revealing of the condemnation of the wicked with the law. And so, we deal with humanity in chapter 3, 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. And here we have the righteousness of God revealed in terms of the imputed righteousness of Christ given to the believer Remember, imputation is a covering, it's a crediting, it's a legal thing. And if we mix imputation with impartation, if we say, remember in the next section, the sanctification, we deal with the righteousness that's being poured out into us, where we're being renewed, we're being changed. If you need a handout, hold your hand up. Um, Alright, so then there is this impartation that's in sanctification. That impartation is the changing of the inward man. It's the, it's the renewing of the inward man. It's a progressive thing. Remember, justification is punctiliar. 
it occurs at a moment in time. And it is complete at that moment. So, I want to remind you of Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33. I'm emphasizing it on purpose. If you don't care about this, you're a fool. If you do not care about the doctrine of justification, you're a fool and you should be afraid. The doctrine of justification is the thing. If you don't get it, you are not saved. So you need to understand the doctrine of justification. Question 33, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. It's an act. In time, moment, sudden, punctiliar, it's an act of God's free grace. Wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It is by faith apart from works. It is by faith apart from moral transformation. It is by faith apart from anything else. It is by faith apart from emotions. It is by faith apart from any experience you've ever had or ever will have. It is by faith alone, alone, alone. That's the gospel of justification. There is nothing to be added to it. And if you subtract from it, you have killed the instrument. So, what is the instrument? What is faith? It's understanding doctrine. The objective faith. And it's believing doctrine. So you have the objective faith. You have the words from God. And they are possessed by your soul. You understand them and you believe them. So we have... Viewed this as so important as a church that we have put this into our church covenant. Vow 5. Do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin and believe that God by grace alone has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in His sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. Remember, we've put those words faith and belief side by side because there is no difference. The Greek word is pistis. There is not two different words. We are not talking about two different things. There's a peculiarity in English where we have faith and we have the word belief. Those things are the same. And the reason we use the word belief is because we need to use it as a verb sometimes. To believe and believing. And you can't deal with the word faith because of that peculiarity of grammar. The word faith is not a verb. So you can't faith and you can't be faithing. That's the problem. So that's the only reason we have two words. If any theologian tries to pull a rabbit out of his hat and tell you there's a difference between faith and belief, scream and run away. That person is trying to murder your soul. Now, we get to sanctification. Sanctification is talked about in chapters 6 through 8. Here we have the righteousness of God talked about. Remember the theme from the thesis. The righteousness of God imparted to the believer in sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It's a process. It's a process. Sanctification is progressive. That process is something that starts and then it continues 
Justification is instantaneous, once for all. It cannot be taken away. Sanctification ebbs and flows. Sanctification, you will not be let go. You will not lose your, your any, you know, you won't, you won't ultimately lose your inward change entirely. And in glorified state, we will be inwardly changed completely. But we need to remember that there's a difference between justification and sanctification. We stand before God as righteous because of what Christ has done, not because of what we have done. We stand before God as righteous because of Christ's righteousness covering us, not because of our righteousness in us. That is the important distinction. Even righteousness is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you plead, the Holy Spirit wrought work in you before God, that is another gospel. And he will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I don't know you. I never knew you. If you plead any of the experiences that you've had with God, if you plead any of the works you've ever done, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many marvelous works in your name? Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. No Holy Spirit wrought works done by you are the basis or grounds of your justification. The work of Jesus Christ in your place instead is the only basis of your justification. Now, we capture the importance of sanctification because... You've been saved, and you haven't been saved so you can wait at the bus stop for Jesus to come. You've been saved so that you can conquer the world. You've been saved so that you can conquer the world. And so, we swear to pursue growth in godliness, to make our hands weapons of righteousness. So, vow six. Do you believe that because God is the Lord, your God, and your Redeemer having saved you from your sin by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone, that the only reasonable response to God's authority and mercy is to live your life as an acceptable sacrifice to God, seeking to glorify Him in the whole of life, by knowing the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth, and spreading the knowledge of the truth, all out of gratitude for the grace of God given to you. There's the motive. If you try to do good works in order to get God's favor, you are seeking to obtain righteousness by works. If you recognize that you're righteous before God because of the work of Christ, then you know you're saved. You've received grace. And so now you have gratitude. The root of the word gratitude, gratis, is grace. Gratitude is a response to grace. Gratitude is the motive, the appropriate motive, out of which to do good works to the glory of God. So sanctification is there. Now, we looked at all these tools of sanctification. So I want you to look at the bottom of page two. We have two, acknowledging obligation. Uh, We see the next one is uh, tool, negative discipline. God disciplines us. Positive blessing, those are tools. Thinking upon these things helps us to pursue I'm sorry, I skipped over ones that were before. You can see there's four that are listed before there. It keeps going, and here's how it ends. Okay, you have this list of those, and it ends with the doctrine of sanctification as a ground of hope. The doctrine of predestination, forgive me. It ends with the doctrine of predestination. And here's the point. It says, look, if you've been saved, you can't lose it. How do I know that? Because everybody who is justified will be glorified. There's the golden chain put forward. Everybody who's elect is somebody who's called. Everybody who's effectually called is justified. Everybody who's justified 
will be glorified. There's, there's this chain there. There's also adoption there. But the, the point is you have this chain. And it's a golden chain. It's a chain that cannot be broken. And so we have that as a ground of hope. And we were raised up to exaltation there in predestination. Predestination is a glorious doctrine. It assures you that you will not lose. It assures you that you will not be lost. It assures you that we win in the earth. So the doctrine of predestination is absolutely necessary for a useful Christian life. Now the response is what comes in chapter 9. And here's the, here's the thing, here's the attack point of the devil for the doctrine of predestination. Oh, God predestines everything? If he, yes, right. <laughs> if he does predestine everything, then doesn't he predestine evil? And if he predestines evil, doesn't that make him bad? Riddle me that, Batman. So that's the response. And the frequent response is to become deflated and to murmur. This is a key doctrine. It's the crescendo of assurance and it's the crescendo of empowering you to do good works. Predestination is absolutely necessary as a doctrine. It is emphasized all over the Bible. It is extremely important. And you can't have assurance of salvation without predestination. If you don't think that God has predestined you to be saved and has predestined you to stay in the faith, then what makes you think you won't be lost? So that's where Paul uses it. That's, that's the point. That's what he says in chapter 8. And he then is able to assure us with this line, chapter 8, verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is page 3. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This ability to not be swayed is because God is more powerful than the creature, and God's mind doesn't change. So we get to chapter 9. Here's where the righteousness of God gets looked at. The righteousness of God in His plan of the predestination of all things for His ends, by His means, at His initiation. So, verses 1 to 13. We head into this section. And what we start out with in the first five verses is this issue of Okay, great. God predestines everything, and you're telling me that uh, a lot of the Jews aren't going to be saved. That seems to have been a point that you've had early on here, Paul. So, doesn't that mean that God's a liar, and His promises to the Jews aren't actually being kept? So, what we have here, look at the handout, bottom of page 3. If God's love is unchanging, if the knowledge and love of God are inalienable, then how have the Jews been cast off? And so here's the answer. Bloodlines may fail. Visible churches may fail. The invisible church will not fail. What's the invisible church? It's the elect. All those whom God has chosen from eternity past. So we're going to consider that. Is that the same group as the Jews? God has not cast off the elect. The promise is not to the flesh or even to the visible church. 
but to the children of promise. That's what gets laid out in the text. So God has not failed, Roman numeral I there, God has not failed to keep his promise to Israel. Not all the people who came from Israel by the flesh are spiritual Israel. Okay, that's the basic answer. We'll look at that in more detail. And so we get a list of what's all the stuff that, that Israel got. Well, they received a sort of adoption. It was an external adoption. The nation was made into a covenanted people. There was a visible church, and there was a national covenanting. This brought adoption into the household of God in terms of a visible sense of adoption. Also, they received the glory, is what we're told. The visible way in which God was present with the Israelite. The Shekinah and the administration of the house of God. We talked about that in more detail when we went through chapter 9 before. The covenants from Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus all came specifically with the Jews. Now, not every single covenant was made with the Jews and the Jews alone. Okay, So what I've got here for you is a list of the major covenants, and I want you to understand these covenants. These covenants are very important. If you want to understand the key story points of the Bible, these covenants are the key story points. God made the, the plot points pretty easy for us by emphasizing them as covenanting actions. Okay, so these covenanting actions are key. So let's think about the covenant. Okay? There's two major things you need to realize about the covenant. There's a covenant of grace and there's a covenant of works, and they're not the same covenant. Sometimes people who are part of the Federal Vision Movement will mix the two and say that there is only one covenant from Adam to Jesus, which is kind of true if you mean from Genesis 3 with Adam onward. If what they mean is the covenant back in Genesis 1 and 2, do this and live, is the same covenant that we're in now, they've made do this and live as opposed to believe and live, or the just shall live by faith. They've taken those two things and they've mixed them. That's another gospel. That's another gospel. That's no gospel at all. That's just be good enough, try harder. And guess what? That does not end well for you. So, the covenant of works is distinct from the covenant of grace. So look at the, look at the section there, page 4, the covenant of works. God entered into a covenant of life with Adam, wherein justice was made more plain, with the promise of reward of life for perfect obedience, and the threat of death offered for lack of conformity or transgression of the law of God. That's a failing to obey or breaking. Either one would be a breaking of the covenant. The sacramental symbols of that covenant were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They showed forth the knowledge of God and of His law as the good life of theonomy. In other words, obeying the law of God. Where God shows us our good and our design in opposition to seeking to define our own good in autonomy, which is self-rule, being a law to yourself. So this was the same for everybody. And that's been Paul's point in the beginning. Everybody, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, all of them are under the covenant of works, and everybody's counted as a breaker of the covenant of works. And then we looked at, in chapter 5, Adam 
as a breaker of the law, and he represented us. So the covenant of works is distinct. And then we have a different covenant with a different representative, Christ, as the second Adam in the covenant of grace. So here's the thing about the covenant of grace. Okay, I've given you two big heads, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Underneath the covenant of grace, you have two major heads, the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is the old administration of the covenant. And the new covenant is the new administration of the covenant. We have the promises that Abraham has. Romans 4.11 says that Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Not of the righteousness that he had by his own works. Abraham received circumcision as a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. That is the righteousness from the covenant of grace. So Abraham was in the same covenant we were in. We get water, he got a blade. We have a sign of the pouring on of water to enter into that covenant. He had a blade to remove the flesh of his foreskin. Those are the different signs, and those are representations of the whole system. One, a blade to remove foreskin, and all of the sacrifices, all of the system, all of the old pomp and glory. The washing with water symbolizes the simplicity and the transportability of the new covenant. It is easy it is easier to bring in. It is more effective at bringing in. It is more effective on those who are brought in. Those are the benefits of the new covenant. So the old covenant has all of these subparts. And here's what the old covenant does. The old covenant, we get it first with Adam. We looked at that last week, providentially. The Adamic covenant. This is the first giving of the covenant of grace. It's in Genesis 3. The covenant of grace was given first in the gospel promise as an oracle of God that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent while also being crushed in his heel by the serpent. Adam and Eve were given with the symbol of the covering of animal skins and the outward ordinance of sacrifice in order to provide a sign for the need and promise of redemption. Okay, so remember this. Adam and Eve were covered in animal skins when you remove the skins from animals, they tend to die. God killed those animals as a sacrifice and put those skins on them to remind them of the righteousness of the seed, Christ. Abel, in chapter 4, offers an acceptable sacrifice to God of animal sacrifice. Do you see that it's obvious that God had instituted that when he gave it to Adam? Otherwise, why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable? Just making it up? God says, good job, you guessed rightly. No. It was revealed in the giving of those animal skins, and it was accepted in chapter 4. So, that's in Genesis. We get to chapter 9 of Genesis, and you have the Noahic covenant. It's the covenant of grace. There's animal sacrifice there. And animal sacrifice, by the way, is not a symbol of the covenant of works. The covenant of works is do this and live. The covenant of grace is 
you are righteous by the death of another. What do those sacrifices point to? Do they point to the death of another, paying for your sins? Or do they say, pay for your own sins? They say, somebody else is paying. Somebody else is dying. Somebody else's blood is being accepted on your behalf. That's what the animal sacrifices say. So we have the Noahic covenant. And by the way, Noah is told to take more of the clean animals than the unclean animals. There's already the animals for sacrifice there. There's already a plan for sacrifice there. He sacrifices and it's accepted. These sacrifices are part of that covenant of grace. They're pointing to they're pointing to salvation by the death of another. So the covenant of grace was built upon with Noah in the giving of the ordinance of the civil magistrate to restrain evil through the use of the sword to avenge crimes. That's the main thing there. Before the fall, no magistrate, lots of evil people enslaving other people, conquering other people, doing all sorts of wickedness. After the fall, what you have, sorry, after the flood, forgive me, not the fall, the flood. After the flood, what you have is, you have the establishment of the civil magistrate to punish crime, the sword. None of these are with just the Jews so far. What is Paul talking about? The covenants were given to the Jews. We got like three so far not given to the Jews. Well, I've underlined for you the ones that were given distinctly to the Jews. The Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out from a pagan city and a pagan house. Genesis 15, God gives him the covenant. Genesis 17, God gives him a sign of the covenant. Circumcision. The Mosaic covenant. You get to the book of Exodus and you have the giving of a renewal ritual. Circumcision is the entry ritual. Exodus, you have Passover given to renew, to renew, to renew, to renew. Circumcision once, Passover over and over again. Baptism once, Lord's Supper over and over and over again. So what we have is this idea of the entry ritual and we have the renewal ritual. And so you have God here giving And what you also have is God now organizes, in the Mosaic Covenant, a national people. The symbol for the church was given back in Genesis 17. There was a visible church that was distinct from a nation back then. Also, back in Genesis 4, you have the distinction of the church from the world. So, when we have this distinction of the church... We need to be aware that the covenants are not just some state church mixture. We have the church, it's distinct from the state. And then in the Mosaic Covenant, you have the establishment of a nation. And there's a covenant with the nation. We are supposed to have covenants as nations now. We are supposed to have covenants as churches. That does not mean that they are the same institution, and they never were. The Davidic Covenant is the covenant of grace given and there's an ending there's an ending with the end of David's life of the transportable tabernacle and you have this establishment of a temple that is stationary and so it's the kind of high advancement point of the old covenant the outward pomp and glory is maximized it is most stable it is most particular to this nation And then we have the covenant of grace as the new covenant. 
And that occurs with the coming of Jesus Christ. It has better gifts, greater depth, and greater extent. Now, that is when we're talking about the covenants being given to Israel. They received the Abrahamic covenant. They received the Mosaic covenant. They received the Davidic covenant. And the Lord Jesus Christ was a Jew. And he received that new administration. And the church was a continuing church with Jewish leaders, Jewish apostles, prophets. And so what you have is this continuing church that breaks away from the apostate Israel. And that continuing body then also has the coming in of the Gentiles. And there's a change of the outward forms, a change of the administration. Now, Paul goes on and he says, the Jews received the giving of the law. They had the service of God, which is sort of the priestly order, the the way in which God would be worshipped in the administration. They received the promises, which is another way of saying the gospel. They had the preaching of the gospel. They had the patriarchs. And from them came Christ. So all that gets emphasized. So then Paul basically says, so do you see then that the word of God didn't fail? Because he did all that stuff. That's what he intended to do. And guess what? He never intended to save every single individual person born in the nation of Israel or who happened to receive the knife to remove the foreskin. Neither one, being in the national covenant or being in the church covenant externally, was sufficient for justification, for salvation, for being counted as righteous before God. So not all of the seed of Abraham by the flesh are children of Abraham in terms of inheritance. Now what we also get here is this recognition that there was never that intention. Going back to Abraham, we get the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael are both saved, but Jesus comes through Isaac and not Ishmael. Then we go to Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, I want you to look at chapter 6, sorry, page 6 here. I want you to look at Roman numeral 7. Roman numeral 7. Not only is it true that Isaac is the child of promise, conceived through the miraculous power of the Spirit, rather than the natural power of man, but Rebecca's conception, like Sarah's conception, Rebecca is um, the, the, the mother of Jacob and Esau, and they're both twins born to her. Okay, and Sarah is Isaac's Isaac's mother. Okay, so Rebecca's conception, like Sarah's conception, was in a state of barrenness. They're both barren; they can't have kids. That barrenness was a symbol for the inability of the human nature to produce good works to produce goodness, to produce life. Now, this supernatural conception, it's not by the ordinary power of the flesh, but it's a conception that was supernatural for all to see. So thus it's a miracle. Okay? A miracle, the root word for miracle is mirar, right? In Spanish, think about that, right? To see. Okay? The word miracle is a supernatural thing that's meant to be looked at. 
Okay, it's, it's able to be seen. It's a sign and wonder. So not every supernatural thing is a miracle. But every miracle is a supernatural thing. And so what we have here is a miracle. This miracle is a sign to point to the idea of the not able to be seen new birth. So the conception was supernatural and for all to see. And so Jacob and Esau both are supernaturally conceived. But that supernatural conception as a sign of the new birth, but not the reality of the new birth, is not the cause of blessedness. Just being born to Isaac was not the cause of blessedness. Jacob and Esau were not only from the same man, like Isaac and Ishmael were, but they're also from the same mother. Moreover, they're twins. Whereas Isaac and Ishmael were both of the same human father and both a part of the visible church and both circumcised and both saved, yet only Isaac was chosen to be the one through whom Christ would come. Jacob and Esau, point eight here, Roman numeral eight, Jacob and Esau were both of the same human father, mother, and time of conception and hour of birth. Both were members of the visible church. Both were circumcised. But Christ would only come through Jacob. And Esau was not and would not be saved from the wrath of God, while Jacob would be saved from the wrath of God. That's what the text is telling us. God does not love everyone. God does not hate everyone. Everyone is someone whom God either hates or loves, and that should terrify you. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Love and hatred are mutually exclusive categories. God does not have contradictory attitudes or desires. Grace is not common. It's particular. Not all Israel is Israel. There's a riddle. Riddling through. What does that mean? Not all Israel is Israel. So what I have here for you on page 7, okay, I've got for you the different terms that we did this. By the way, I did this in like four sermons before, so you can't hate me. Um, not all Israel is Israel. National Israel, church Israel, and spiritual Israel. I've bolded those and underlined them for you. So you've got the three terms. These are the three ways we're using the term Israel. So then I've got definitions for you. National Israel, what's that? The citizens of Israel as a state. Church Israel, what's that? That's the church members in the old national church. Spiritual Israel, what's that? The ones that have been saved. They're the regenerate elect. So Paul is going to go through and he's going to say, look, the promise wasn't to national Israel. The promise wasn't to church Israel. The promise was to spiritual Israel. That's what he does. That's what he walks through. Now, we talked about the visible church and the invisible church last time. We spent a lot of time on it. I've got some statements, some propositions down there for you. And, And I want to summarize that. Earlier on in Romans, we saw not everybody that's circumcised is saved, and not everybody that's saved is circumcised. That's true for baptism now. Now, we get through all that, and what you get in chapter 9, verse 14, is you go, okay, okay, fine, so it's really clear 
from the scriptures that God predestines, and it's really clear that God has kept his promise to Israel, and that there's the elect, that they were the ones that the promise was always to. But, is there unrighteousness with God? If he causes everything, if he predestines everything, doesn't that mean that God is evil? And then, after that, you get to, well, okay, fine, so God's not evil, but how can he hold us responsible for our sin if he predestines everything? You ever had any discussions about predestination? Have those come up every time? That is the order. I mean, it's, if you go through and you present the argument in the order that Paul presents the argument to people, you will find that it's like a telephone script for a salesman. I'm glad you asked. Right? There's this, there's this, oh, I've told you that God predestines everything and that everybody who's saved is somebody that God was prede- had predestined to save and that everything that happens is predestined. Well, then God causes evil and he's bad. Okay, you explain that. And then they say, okay, fine, but he can't hold me responsible then if he causes me to do it. I was born this way. Right? You get hit with that. So here's the deal. In order to deal with that well, you need to meditate on the answer and be ready to give it. In order to deal with that well, you need to memorize a few things. Okay, so I've taught on this a few times, and I'm going to review it right now. And if you are unable to answer these objections, the next time it comes up, you will have squandered the teaching, and you will have dishonored the Lord by not being ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. I would suggest to you that the principal thing that allows you to have hope that you individually are saved is the idea that you have been predestined by God to receive grace. That's the main point of your hope. And if you can't answer those objections, when you present the doctrine that you are saved by the sovereign God, then you don't have an answer for the hope that's in you. So be able to answer. So, we say God controls all things. Page 8.1 God controls all things, including evil, but God is not unjust for being the cause of evil. There are sub-points underneath here that help to make this clear. Okay, and I've got it written out for you, so you can understand it. I'm happy to answer questions about this. If you don't get it still, come talk to me. I've got books, I've got time, I'll make time. This is something that you need to understand and you need to have assurance of salvation and, ju- and predestination is necessary for assurance of salvation. So, if God controls everything, He causes evil. Does that mean He's unjust? The first thing to understand is that people don't get God is above the law. God is above the law. Sometimes other languages make it easier to remember things as special points. He's ex lex. That means above the law. Ex, outside of or above. Lex, the law. God's above the law. There's not a law above him. 
When you say you shall not kill, guess who's not under that law? God. God kills a man, it's justified. God kills a man, it's justified. You shall not steal. Who does that apply to? Not God. God takes something, it's his. Deal with it. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God orders you to worship him, not idolatry. You better worship him. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. God's above the law. God gives the law. God is not judged by the law. Without God, there's no meaningful definition of good. There's no definition of good by which to judge God. So let's move to point two there. Okay, so still on page eight. Number two. There is no judge to call God before. All right, God, you're unrighteous. Great. Who's going to judge him? Whose bar will he appear before? What summons will he answer? What court will arraign him? None. There is no law above God, and there is no judge above God. So, third point there. By definition, whatever God does is good. God is good, and what he does is good. That is the definition of good. His law tells us what's good for us. His law tells us what's good for us. Good is different for God in the sense that he can do different things than we can do. But there's an objective good that unites all reality, and that's God. So what's good for man is to possess God. Can you put God in a bucket? Like, scoop him out? Make little balls? What can you do? How can you possess God? You possess him by knowing you. By knowing him. You possess God by knowing God. The faith that's revealed is believed with our faith. That's how you possess God. That's the good for us. For God, God's the good. He knows himself, and he does what he pleases, and whatever he does is good. Fourth point there. The ends and the means. God creates things that are good and he decrees that those things do evil for the display of justice and mercy. So God has a reason why he predestines evil. He predestines evil for his glory. He's able to show justice more fully because there's evil people to punish and evil angels to punish. And evil allows there to be Persons that receive mercy. Where there is no transgression, there is no need of mercy. So, those four points are very important and you need to know them. That's the basic answer. God's above the law. What are you judging him by? By what standard? 
There is no judge above God. God is a definition of good. And what He does is good. And He has good reason for there to be evil. Those are the things that you need to be able to say in response. You need to know it in more detail. But you need to be able to say those things. That removes any basis of anybody being able to charge God. There's an incoherence to charging God. What standard again? What judge? Now, in order to talk about this with greater clarity, I want to encourage you to generally avoid the phrase, the will of God, and instead to use the two phrases, the command of God and the decree of God. When you say the will of God, people wonder, do you mean what God telling you to do? Or do you mean what God has planned to happen? The command of God is what he's telling you to do. The decree of God is what he's planned to happen. Removes the ambiguity, makes it easier to talk about. People want to say, God wills that you shall not murder, and yet God will that this person get murdered. See, contradiction. No. The word will is being used in two different ways. He commands don't murder. He decrees this person got murdered. Now, there is other language, and this is more technical, and so I'm not going to re-explain it now, but I have explained it in the prior set of sermons on this. The word cause is ambiguous, and there are different ways of using it. And so I have listed out the different types of causes and what the different types of causes are as they relate to sin. So those are listed out for you. That's something that's more advanced. I would encourage you to know it. It will help you. But I'm telling you, you need to get the bold points in 1 through 4 there so that you can give an answer to people who object to predestination. If it goes a little bit longer than that, and you need to be able to deal with more detail, you got this. Happy to talk to you. Got good books. All right. Page 9. The thing that's bolded and says point 2. Page 9. Unless God is the definition of good, we have no way to judge anything, much less judging God. That is a breaking out, and I'm explaining further that idea that there's no law above God and He's the definition of good. Now, the way in which we possess God as, a good, as the good, something I explained further in the notes there, I don't have time to go through now. I've already given you a brief summary of it. And here we have uh, the different senses of the word logos as are laid out in one of the logos papers from Surendra Gangadine. Um, those he was not the first to identify those. Those exist. There's, there's, they're in the scriptures themselves, and they are written about um, in different ways. But that's his organizing point. Point three. And by the way, all the, the that layout of the short version of how to answer the problem of evil, Gordon Clark lays that out well in God and Evil, The Problem Solved. His very short, very concise, very clear explanation of how you deal with that. He pulls together those verses exceptionally well. And um, that work by Gordon Clark, God and Evil, The Problem Solved, that's the first book I'm going to point anybody to. It's a 30-page book. If this is a problem you can't figure out, you don't understand it, and you can't read 30 pages, then what are you doing with your life? All right. Point three, 
God is both the objective good and the good for man. We can possess him by knowing him. Point four, page ten, bottom of page ten. Point four, God achieves the good end. Right? He doesn't fail at achieving his ends. He accomplishes them. So he works everything together for the good of showing his glory. So predestination is dealt with there. Now we have um, the second question, which was, how does he still find fault? How does he still find fault? Well, okay. Do you have a judge? Or are you God? Oh, God's your judge. Is there a standard that applies to you? Like the law of God? You go, I don't know the law of God, though. Sorry we dealt with this. Chapters 1 through 3. Law of God is written on your heart. And guess what? Your own conscience contradicts itself. We're going to play back your mind now. And yesterday you said it was bad to lie. And today you just told a lie. So guess what? Your own thoughts convict you. God gets to play back your mind like a tape recorder. Anybody else here know what a tape recorder is? God can play that back. And he can play it over and over again. Say, so what did you say? What, did you, what was you thinking? What were you thinking? You thought lying was bad. I and mean, you lied right there. You thought it was bad here. And you lied right there. Mm. Guilty by your own thoughts. So there's a judge and there's a standard. And guess what? You might want to define good and evil like Adam and Eve. But you don't get to define good and evil like Adam and Eve. You're not God. God is God. So, why does he still find fault? Because he predestines you to break his law so that he can find fault. Deal with it. The reason people don't like it is not because it's a contradiction. There's no contradiction there. There's not a problem there. What's the basis of finding fault? There's a standard and a judge. And also, he's made you aware of a standard that you violate. You have knowledge of a standard that you break. What's the objection? There's not a logical objection. What's the objection? The objection is a temper tantrum thrown in a culture, manifested in popular art. That's the objection. The objection is a temper tantrum. I don't like it. That's not a good argument. Here's what they want their objection to sound like. If God predestines evil, then God is evil. I'm sorry, we just dealt with that. How do you define good and evil? What judge is judging God? What standard is being used? You don't have a coherent theory of good and evil to call him evil. You're just stealing a word and using it meaninglessly. Once you define good, I'll know what your objection is, and then we can talk about it. Okay, so I want you to, I want to emphasize that point. If they don't have a definition of good, they don't have a basis to say God is evil. If they don't have a definition of good, they don't have a basis to say God is evil. We have a definition of good. God is good. And by that definition, when God causes us to sin, by predestining us to sin, He's not evil. It's not a problem in our system. The problem with your system buddy old pal, is that you don't know what good is. You don't know your right hand from your left. You don't know the difference between a boy and a girl. That's your problem. So, 
The second question of how do we, how does he still find fault? It's easy. He's the judge. He's given the law as a standard. And your own conscience testifies against you. Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make from one lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonored use? What if God, wanting to make his wrath known, prepared some for destruction? And what if he wanted to show his mercy and prepared some for honor? That's what Paul says. That's the absolute predestination of God. To read this text in any other way is totally dishonest. Arminianism is a joke. Anything that tries to make God not predestine everything isn't dealing with the God of the Bible. They're making up a God of their own imaginings. See Romans 1. Don't do that. We get to the end of this chapter. And at the end of this chapter, what you have is a presenting in verses 25 to 29 of this same doctrine from the scriptures of the Old Covenant. And what is, pre- what is said there is that in the New Covenant, we're on page 11 now, in the New Covenant, God will bring in Gentile nations to the visible church and he will cause nations as civil bodies to covenant with him, and he will save many Gentile individuals. Then, in verses 9 to 33, there's a consideration of the Jews and the Gentiles before God. How do we make sense of all of this? And here's the answer. On page 12. Roman numeral 2. The Gentiles did not seek righteousness, but they have attained righteousness namely the righteousness that comes through the instrumentality of faith, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Israel sought righteousness through the instrumentality of personal and group law-keeping and has thus not attained righteousness. Why did Israel not attain to righteousness? Because Israel did not seek righteousness through the instrumentality of faith, but through personal and group obedience to the law. This is an illegal use of the law. And then we're told at the end, Jesus, as your righteousness, is the stumbling stone. Jesus, as your righteousness, is the rock of offense. That's what Israel tripped over. The gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because they wanted to be righteous by their own works. God did that to make them an example so that the Gentiles would be brought in, so that the Jews would become jealous, so that the Jews would be brought in, so that the world would go from dead to alive. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights.